Section 15 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA, January 2021. Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident, Section 15. Design Questions Resurface Also in late August, Thiokol submitted Preliminary Solid Rocket Motor Nozzle Field Joint Seal Concepts to NASA, which were formulated to solve the solid rocket motor sealing problems. The document contained 43 possible design concepts for field joints and 20 for nozzle joints. The report said Thiokol, quote, feels the case field joint poses the greatest potential risk in that its secondary seal may not maintain metal contact throughout motor operation. The nozzle joint is also of major concern because the frequency and severity of seal damage experienced has been greater than any other joint, end quote. In September 1985, Thiokol's plans called for test firing a static motor with various O-ring configurations. In a September 10 presentation to Marshall, Thiokol discussed erosion predictions and evaluated primary engineering concerns including joint deflection and secondary O-ring resiliency. Temperature was not mentioned. Prior to that Thiokol presentation, Marshall Science and Engineering Director Kingsbury had informed Solid Rocket Booster Program Manager Malloy, quote, I am most anxious to be briefed on plans for improving the solid rocket motor O-ring seals. Specifically, I want to review plans which lead to flight qualifications and the attendant schedules. I have been apprised of general ongoing activities, but these do not appear to carry the priority which I attach to the situation. I consider the O-ring seal problem on the solid rocket motor to require priority attention of both Morton Thiokol, Wasatch, and MSFC." End quote. Early in October, internal warnings about the lack of results from the O-ring task force came when Thiokol's management got two separate memoranda complaining about administrative delays and lack of cooperation. One memorandum was written by Roger Boisjolly on October 4, 1985 and it warned Thiokol management about lack of management support of the O-ring team's efforts. He said that, quote, even NASA perceives that the team is being blocked in its engineering efforts to accomplish its task. NASA is sending an engineering representative to stay with us starting October 14th. We feel that this is in direct result of their feeling that we, Thiokol, are not responding quickly enough on the SEAL problem, end quote. R.V. Ebling, manager of Thiokol's solid rocket motor ignition system, began his October 1, 1985 report to McDonald with the alarming word, help. Ebling said the SEAL task force was, quote, constantly being delayed by every possible means, end quote. Marshall Space Flight Center, he said, is correct in stating that we do not know how to run a development program. Ebeling continued, the allegiance to the O-Ring Investigation Task Force is very limited to a group of engineers numbering 8 to 10. 
our assigned people in manufacturing and quality have the desire, but are encumbered with other significant work. Others in manufacturing, quality, procurement, who are not involved directly, but whose help we need, are generating plenty of resistance. We are creating more instructional paper than engineering data. We wish we could get action by verbal request, but such is not the case. This is a red flag." End quote. Shuttle Flight 61A was launched October 30, 1985. It experienced nozzle O-ring erosion and field joint O-ring blow-by. These anomalies were not mentioned at the Level 1 Flight Readiness Review for Flight 61B. That flight was launched on November 26, 1985 and sustained nozzle O-ring erosion and blow-by. The following month, December, Thiokol's problem status report, which tracked the field joint erosion anomaly, stated that the O-ring task force had made one hot gas test and preliminary results indicated the test chamber needed to be redesigned. Mr. Eberling of Thiokol became so concerned about the gravity of the O-ring problem that he told fellow members of the SEAL task force that he believed Thiokol should not ship any more motors until the problem was fixed. In testimony before the commission, Ebeling said, Mr. Ebeling, well, I am a hydraulics engineer by profession, and O-rings and seals and hydraulics are very sacred, but for the most part, a hydraulics or pneumatics engineer controls the structure, the structural design, the structural deformation to make sure that this neat little part that is so critical is giving everything it needs to operate. In solid rocket motors, I have been there now pushing 25 years. They had a different attitude on O-rings when I came there, and it is not just thiacol, it is universal. Dr. Covert, by universal, you mean the solid rocket industry? Mr. Eberling, the entire solid rocket industry. It gets around from one, the competitor's information eventually gets to me by one track or another, and mine to them. But my experience on O-rings was and is to this date that the O-ring is not a mechanism and never should be a mechanism that sees the heat of the magnitude of our motors. And I think before I do retire, I'm going to make sure that we discontinue to fly with round seals, which I am against round seals anyway. I think seals with memories, not pressure activated, but energized through mechanical means, and in all cases, keep the heat of our rocket motors away from those seals. Whatever it is, you do not need chamber pressure to energize a seal. Dr. Covert, in this regard then, did you have an increasing concern as you saw the tendency first to accept thermal distress, and then to say, well, we can model this reasonably, and we can accept a little bit of erosion, and then etc. etc. Did this cause you a feeling of, if not distress, then betrayal in terms of your feeling about O-rings? Mr. Eberling, I'm sure sorry you asked that question. Mr. Covert, I'm sorry I had to. Mr. Eberling, to answer your question, yes. In fact, I have been an advocate I used to sit on the O-ring task force and was involved in the SEALs since Brian Russell worked directly for me, and I had a certain allegiance to this type of thing anyway, that I felt that we shouldn't ship any more rocket motors until we got it fixed. Dr. Covert, 
Did you voice this concern? Mr. Eberly? Unfortunately, not to the right people. The closure issue. On December 6, 1985, Thiokol's Brian Russell wrote Al McDonald, Thiokol's solid rocket motor project director, requesting, quote, closure of the solid rocket motor O-ring erosion critical problems, end quote. He gave 17 reasons for the closure, including test results, future test plans, and the work to date of Thiokol's task force. Four days later, December 10, McDonald wrote a memorandum to NASA's Ware asking for closure of the O-ring problem. All O-ring erosion problems, including the problem containing the July 1985 launch constraint, were among the referenced matters that Thiokol suggested should be closed. McDonald noted that the O-ring problem would not be fully resolved for some time, and he enclosed a copy of Thiokol's August 30 plan for improving the motor seals. Brian Russell described the problem tracking process and gave the reason for the closure recommendation during the following exchange. Mr. Russell, we have our reliability engineering department who is responsible to complete the monthly problem report. And in addition to that, we have our monthly problem review board telephone conference with NASA and the contractors of which we are a part and the monthly problem review or the monthly problem report that reliability prepares they get the information from engineering or from the office as necessary to complete their status of what has happened during that month, whether the problem originated that month or what has been done to close that problem out. And that is submitted every month. And I, for one, do review that before it is submitted to the Marshall Space Flight Center. And so much of the information that I would read in these reports would be the same information that we had given in that monthly problem report or over the telephone on the teleconference. Chairman Rogers. Mr. Russell, when you say close the problem out, what do you mean by that? How do you close it out normally? Mr. Russell. Normally, whether it takes engineering analysis or tests or some corrective action, a closeout to the problem would occur after an adequate corrective action had been taken to satisfy those on the problem review board that the problem had indeed been closed out. That is the way that that happens. For example, we had found a loose bolt on the recovery one time, and we had to take corrective action in our procedures and in the engineering to make sure that that wouldn't happen again, and then to verify that corrective action and at that point that the problem would be ready to be closed out. It generally involves a report or at least a mention by the review board stating what had been done to adequately close it out. And then it is agreed upon by the parties involved. Question, what do you understand a launch constraint to mean? Mr. Russell, my understanding of a launch constraint is that the launch cannot proceed without adequately without everyone's agreement that the problem is under control. Chairman Rogers. Under control meaning what? You just said a moment ago that you would expect some corrective action to be taken. Mr. Russell. That is correct. And in this particular case, on this 51B nozzle O-ring erosion problem, there had been some corrective action taken. And that was included in the presentation made as a special addendum to the next flight readiness review. 
and at the time we did agree to continue to launch, which apparently had lifted the launch constraint, would be my understanding. Chairman Rogers, but really my question is, did you gentlemen realize that it was a launch constraint? Mr. Russell, I would like to answer for myself. I didn't realize that there was a formal launch constraint on this one, any different than some of the other erosion and blow-by that we had seen in the past. Mr. Eberling, I agree. Question, Mr. Russell, you wrote a letter, did you not, or a memorandum indicating that the problem should be closed. Could you explain to the commission what you meant by that? Mr. Russell, yes. In our December telephone call on the Problem Review Board, and I can't remember the date, it was around the 9th or so, there was a request to close the problems out, and particularly the ones that had been open for a long time, of which this was one. And a long time, meaning six months or more. There was a request from the Director of Engineering, as I recall it, that we close these problems out. Dr. Walker. That was the Director of Engineering at Marshall? Mr. Russell. Yes, at Marshall Space Flight Center. Now, he wasn't in that call. My understanding is that they told us, and my recollection was that Mr. Kingsbury would like to see these problems closed out. Now, the normal method of closing them out is to implement the corrective action, verify the corrective action, and then the problem is closed. It comes off the board and is no longer under active review. Chairman Rogers, what was being done to fix it? Mr. Russell, well, we had a task force created of full-time people at Thiokol, of which I was a member of that task team, and we had done some engineering tests. We were trying to develop concepts. We had developed some concepts to block the flow of hot gas against the O-ring to the point where the O-ring would no longer be damaged in a new configuration. And we had run some cold gas tests and some hot gas motor firing tests. And we're working toward a solution of the problem. And we had some meetings scheduled with the Marshall Space Flight Center. We had weekly telephone calls where we statused our progress. And there was a team at Marshall, also of engineering people, who were monitoring the things that we were doing to fix the problem with the goal of implementing a fix in our qualification motor number five which was scheduled at that time in January, this time frame being about the December time frame of last year. Chairman Rogers, can I interrupt? So you're trying to figure out how to fix it, right? And you're doing some things to try to help you figure out how to fix it. Now, why at that point would you close it out? Mr. Russell, because I was asked to. Chairman Rogers, I see. Well, that explains it. Mr. Rummel, it explains it, but really doesn't make any sense. On one hand, you close out items that you've been reviewing flight by flight that have obviously critical implications. On the basis that after you close it out, you're going to continue to try to fix it. So I think what you're really saying is you're closing it out because you don't want to be bothered. Somebody doesn't want to be bothered with flight-by-flight -flight reviews, but you're going to continue to work on it after it's closed out. 
Marshall received the Thiokol letter asking for the closure and entry was placed on all Marshall problem reports referenced in McDonald's December 10 letter indicating, quote, contractor closure received, end quote, on December 18, 1985. On January 23, 1986, another entry was placed on the same reports indicating the, quote, problem is considered closed, end quote. Lawrence Malloy and Lawrence Ware testified those entries were, quote unquote, in error. They said, Mr. Malloy, the problem assessment system was put in place to provide visibility throughout the shuttle system for the types of problems that do occur, not just in flight, but also in qualification tests and in failure of hardware that is back for refurbishment at a vendor or whatever. And it is a closed loop tracking system that lists the anomaly. Now the entry that is shown in there that the problem was closed prior to 51L is in error. What happened there was one of your documents here, which we did not discuss, is the letter from Mr. McDonald to Mr. Ware, which proposed that this problem be dropped from the problem assessment system and no longer be tracked for the reasons stated in Mr. McDonald's letter. That letter was in the review cycle. The letter, I believe, was dated 10 December 1985. It came into the center. It was in the review cycle. After Mr. Ware brought this letter to my attention, my reaction was, we are not going to drop this from the problem assessment system because the problem is not resolved and it has to be dealt with on a flight-by-flight -flight basis. Since that was going through the review cycle, the people who run this problem assessment system erroneously entered a closure for the problem on the basis of the submittal from Thiokol. Having done that then for the 51L review, this did not come up in the flight readiness review as an open launch constraint. So you won't find a project signature because the PAS system showed the problem was closed and that was an error. Chairman Rogers, who made the error, do you know? Mr. Malloy, the people who do the problem assessment system. Mr. Ware, Mr. Fletcher, and he reports within our quality organization at the flight readiness reviews, as I think have been described to you before. There is one from Thiokol to me, and there is one from my group to Larry, and then Larry, of course, does one with the shuttle project office and so forth on up the line. At my review and at Larry's review, here is a heads up given to the quality representative at the board for what problems the system has open, and they cross-check to make sure that we address that problem in the readiness review. On this particular occasion, there was no heads up given because their problem assessment system considered that action closed. That is unfortunate. Project Manager Malloy was asked during the commission hearings about the original response to the O-ring erosion. Mr. Holtz. Mr. Malloy, I would like to understand this in somewhat simpler terms than you people are used to using. Is it correct to state that when you originally designed this joint and looked at it, that you did not anticipate erosion of any of the O-ring during flights. Mr. Malloy. That is my understanding. I entered this program in November of 1982, and I wasn't there on the original design of the joint, but when I took over the program, there was no O-ring erosion anticipated. Mr. Holtz. 
so that when you did run into signs of O-ring erosion, this was a bad sign. Mr. Malloy. Yes, sir. Mr. Holtz. So then you decided to introduce a standard based on the measurement or the possibility of the limits of O-ring erosion. And as those limits, as the experience went up, your criteria for, say, flight went up too. In other words, when you experienced more than maximum anticipated O-ring erosion, you waived the flight and said, well, it's possible to tolerate that. We still have a margin left. Mr. Malloy, are you speaking of the case where we did not have a primary seal? Mr. Holtz, yes. Mr. Malloy, yes, sir, that is correct. Mr. Holtz, then you finally, you're talking about these margins of safety. And I wonder if you could express in either percentages or actual measurement terms. You have used the term, quote unquote, wide margin. I wonder if you could give us a quantitative measurement as to what you consider a wide margin. Mr. Malloy. Yes, sir. Well, as I said, we had demonstrated that we could stand 125 thousandths of erosion and still seat. The maximum erosion that we had seen in the case joint was on STS-2, which was 53 thousandths. So that is a factor of two and a half. Dr. Keel, I think, Larry, if you go back and look at your flight readiness reviews, that you were relying on less margins than that. You were arguing in the flight readiness reviews where you briefed the problems of primary O-ring erosion that for the worst case, for the field joint, also that it would be 90 thousandths. Mr. Malloy, that is correct. Dr. Keel, at that point, you were pointing out that's okay because you can seal at 95, not at 125, but at 95. It wasn't until later on during the process that you determined you could seal at 125. Mr. Malloy, that is when we got the hot gas test data. Dr. Keel, so that's a 5% margin, roughly, five and a half. Mr. Malloy, on the 90 to 95 on the max predictable, yes. Temperature effects. The record of the fateful series of NASA and Thiokol meetings, telephone conferences, notes, and facsimile transmissions on January 27th, the night before the launch of Flight 51L, shows that only limited consideration was given to the past history of O-ring damage in terms of temperature. The managers compared, as a function of temperature, the flights for which thermal distress of O-rings had been observed not the frequency of occurrence based on all flights. In such a comparison, there is nothing irregular in the distribution of O-ring distress over the spectrum of joint temperatures at launch between 53 degrees Fahrenheit and 75 degrees Fahrenheit. When the entire history of flight experience is considered, including normal flights with no erosion or blow-by, the comparison is substantially different. This comparison of flight history indicates only three incidents of O-ring thermal distress occurred out of 20 flights with O-ring temperatures at 66 degrees Fahrenheit or above, whereas all four flights with O-ring temperatures at 63 degrees Fahrenheit or below 
experienced O-ring thermal distress. Consideration of the entire launch temperature history indicates that the probability of O-ring distress is increased to almost a certainty if the temperature of the joint is less than 65. Flight readiness reviews. It is clear that contractor and NASA program personnel all believe that the O-ring erosion blow-by anomaly and even the launch constraint were problems that should be addressed in NASA's flight readiness review process. The flight readiness review is a multi-tiered review that is designed to create an information flow from the contractor up through level three at Marshall, then to level two officials from Johnson and level one at headquarters. With regard to solid rocket booster, the process begins at the element level and culminates in a coordinated Marshall position at subsequent levels two and one flight readiness review. NASA policy manuals list four objectives of the shuttle project's flight readiness review. An intermediate review between level three and level one, when contractors and level three program personnel consider the upcoming launch. The stated objectives are, one, to provide the review team sufficient information necessary for them to make an independent judgment regarding flight readiness. Two, review solved problems and previous flight anomalies and establish confidence in solution rationale. Three, address all problems, technical issues, open items, and constraints requiring resolution before flight. Four, establish flight baseline configuration, particularly as it differs from previous missions. The commission has reviewed the various documentary presentations made by Thiokol and NASA program people for flight readiness reviews on all shuttle flights. The O-ring presentations in those flight readiness reviews have been summarized in an appendix to this report. The erosion on STS-2 was not considered on any level of flight readiness review for STS-3. Similarly, the heat effect on STS-6's primary O-ring in the nozzle was not mentioned on the STS-7 flight readiness review in 1983. However, the rationale for acceptance of the secondary seal condition for the lightweight case first flown on STS-6 contained the observation that an O-ring sealed during the thiocol test under 3000 PSI, where 0.125 inches had been cut out of the O-ring. The inattention to erosion and blow-by anomaly changed when Thiokol filed a problem report on the field joint erosion after STS-41B. The O-ring problems, field and nozzle, on 41B were briefed as a technical issue in the 41C flight readiness review. Probable causes were defined as Putty blow-through at ignition causes cavity between putty and primary O-ring to fill during pressurization. Inability of putty to withstand motor pressure. Air entrapment in putty during mating. Blow holes in putty during joint leak test. Thiokol presented the question at its 41C pre-board to Marshall. Quote, if primary O-ring allowed a hot gas jet to pass through, would the secondary O-ring survive impingement?" End quote. 
At the 41C Level 1 Flight Readiness Review on March 30, 1984, Marshall said the erosion phenomena was quote-unquote acceptable and that blowholes in the putty were the quote, most probable cause, end quote. The rationale for acceptance of the possibility of erosion on STS-41C was, conservative analysis indicates max erosion possible, 0.090 inches for field joint, 0.090 inches nozzle joint. Laboratory test of full-scale O-ring joint cross-section shows capability to sustain joint sealing integrity at 3,000 PSI pressure using an O-ring with a simulated 0.095-inch erosion depth. Recommendation. Fly STS-41C, accepting possibility of some O-ring gas impingement. The next significant treatment of the problem occurred after the coldest flight, 51C, at 53 degrees in January 1985. In part, Thiokol's extensive analysis for the 51E flight readiness review was due to the fact that four joints on 51C had problems. Additionally, Mr. Malloy's specific request for a recap of O-ring history undoubtedly prompted a full treatment. Temperature was highlighted as a concern when Malloy took Thiokol's analysis up to the Shuttle Project's Office Flight Readiness Review. That 18-page brief concluded with the statement that STS-51C consistent with erosion data-based. Low temperature enhanced probability of blow-by. STS-51C experienced worst case temperature change in Florida history. STS-51E could exhibit the same behavior. Condition is acceptable. At the Level 1 Flight Readiness Review for 51E on February 21, 1985, the previous 18-page analysis had been reduced to a one-page chart with the resolution, quote, acceptable risk because of limited exposure and redundancy. Reference STS-41C-FRR. No mention of temperature was found in the Level 1 report. The last major discussion of erosion was at the Level 1 Flight Readiness Review for STS-51F, July 2, 1985. An analysis of failure of the nozzle primary O-ring to seal during the erosion on flight STS-51B April 29, 1985, was presented. This serious erosion was attributed to leak check procedures. An increase in the nozzle leak check to 20 PSI was proposed to be a cure. There was no mention of the fact that 0.171 inches of erosion on the primary O-ring far exceeded a more recent analysis model prediction of 0.070 inches maximum possible erosion. This was a revision of the former prediction of 0.090 inches. The launch constraint activated after STS-51B was not specifically listed in the Level 1 Flight Readiness Review for 51F. The Commission has also not found any mention of the Dooley 1985 constraint or its waiver for subsequent shuttle flights in any Flight Readiness Review briefing documents.
The Commission's review of the Marshall and Thiokol documentary presentations at the various flight readiness reviews revealed several significant trends. First, O-ring erosion was not considered early in the program when it first occurred. Second, when the program grew worse after STS-41B, the initial analysis of the program did not produce much research. Instead, there was an early acceptance of the phenomenon. Third, because of a belief that in-flight O-ring erosion was, quote-unquote, within the database of prior experience, later flight readiness reviews gave a cursory review and often dismissed the recurring erosion as within, quote, acceptable or, quote, allowable limits. Fourth, both Thiokol and Marshall continued to rely on the redundancy of secondary O-ring long after NASA had officially declared that the SEAL was a non-redundant single-point failure. Finally, in 1985, when temperature became a major concern after STS-51C, and when the launch constraint was applied after 51B, NASA Levels 1 and 2 were not informed of these developments in the flight readiness review process. Findings The genesis of the Challenger accident, the failure of the joint of the right solid rocket motor, began with decisions made in the design of the joint and in the failure by both Thiokol and NASA's Solid Rocket Booster Project Office to understand and respond to facts obtained during testing. The Commission has concluded that neither Thiokol nor NASA responded adequately to internal warnings about faulty SEAL design. Furthermore, Thiokol and NASA did not make a timely attempt to develop and verify a new SEAL after the initial design was shown to be deficient. Neither organization developed a solution to the unexpected occurrences of O-ring erosion and blow-by even though this problem was experienced frequently during the shuttle flight history. Instead, Thiokol and NASA management came to accept erosion and blow-by as unavoidable and an acceptable flight risk. Specifically, the Commission has found that, number one, the joint test and certification program was inadequate. There was no requirement to configure the qualifications test motor as it would be in flight and the motors were static tested in a horizontal position, not in the vertical flight position. Two, prior to the accident, neither NASA nor Thiokol fully understood the mechanism by which the joint sealing action took place. Three, NASA and Thiokol accepted escalating risk, apparently because they, quote, got away with it the last time, unquote, as Commissioner Feynman observed the decision-making was, quote, a kind of Russian roulette. The shuttle flies with O-ring erosion and nothing happens. Then it is suggested, therefore, that the risk is no longer so high for the next flights. We can lower our standards a little bit because we got away with it last time. You got away with it, but it shouldn't be done over and over again like that. End quote. Four. NASA's system for tracking anomalies for flight readiness reviews failed in that, despite a history of persistent O-ring erosion and blow-by, flight was still permitted. It failed again in the strange sequence of six consecutive launch constraint waivers prior to 51L, permitting it to fly without any record of waiver or even an explicit constraint. 
tracking and continuing only anomalies that are, quote, outside the database, unquote, of prior flight allowed major problems to be removed from and lost by the reporting system. Five, the O-ring erosion history presented to Level 1 at NASA headquarters in August 1985 was sufficiently detailed to require corrective action prior to the next flight. Six, a careful analysis of flight history of O-ring performance would have revealed that the correlation of O-ring damage and low temperature. Neither NASA nor Thiokol carried out session analysis. Consequently, they were unprepared to properly evaluate the risks of launching the 51L mission in conditions more extreme than they had encountered before. End of section 15. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA, January 2021.